Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Aiken for that introduction. I could listen to that one all day, and I thought we were all going to have to for just a second, but <laughs> we didn't. Sit down there with your wife now and be very kind and courteous. Let's open our Bibles to Paul's first recorded sermon at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. And uh, while you're while you're turning uh, to our text. Let me just encourage you. We at Guidestone uh, want to be a partner with you throughout the ministry that you've received from the Lord. That's why every full-time uh, seminary student in all of our six seminaries, we provide a free a survivor life insurance program for you. All you got to do is sign up to get it. And uh, you can learn more about that by just going to Guidestone.org and seeing what we do. And, or you can go to OSHawkins.com. There are Hundreds of free preaching resources there and free book downloads. Uh, most all of my recent books are just on free book downloads at oshawkins.com. You can learn more about the ministry of Mission Dignity that we have at Guidestone there. There are things like staff meetings. There are 26 weeks of little 15-minute video clips. You can have go to staff meeting uh, with me every week on there. Everything on there is free, basically, on that. So hope you'll go there and learn more about the ministry of Guidestone and and uh, be equipped to preach the gospel. You know, there are a lot of different books. You can go to any bookstore today, and leadership books are a dime a dozen. Everybody's written a book on leadership. And, you know, some people think that leadership is characterized by certain punctuation marks. In other words, some people think to be a good leader, you ought to be characterized by the period, the mandate, the command. In other words, they say a leader uh, ought to be characterized by the period. Go here, go there, do this, do that, and just bark orders and lead in such a domineering, dictatorial manner that you just are uh, known by the orders that you give. And you know that works for a little while, but but, uh, nobody finishes well when they have a leadership style like that. Other people say, no, it's characterized by the exclamation point enthusiasm and optimism and expectancy and the ability to cast vision and sway people and woo people. But, uh, you know, that, that gets old without much substance after a while. When you really think about it, true leaders are characterized by that symbol that's bent in humility. We call it the question mark. Leaders ask questions. Jesus was always asking questions. Think about that. He who was God clothed in human flesh, he who was omniscient and all-knowing, he who had all truth, who was in fact self-proclaimed the truth, was always asking questions. 150 questions escaped the lips of our Lord that are recorded in the Gospels. And John says if everything Jesus said and did had been recorded, all the books of the world couldn't contain them. He was always asking questions. Not because he needed answers. He was 
trying to position us to see ourselves for where we were. And that's what I want to do today. Because tucked away in this Pisidian Antioch message of Paul is one verse that I want to share with you today where he used David, King David, as an illustration. And I want to share it with you today because as you're here studying and preparing for ministry, as you're here studying and already in the ministry and vocational manners, there are four questions that every one of us ought to ask of ourselves as we embark in ministry, as we prepare for ministry, as we minister this glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are stewards of the gospel. We find them in one verse, verse 36 of Acts 13, where Paul almost parenthetically, says, David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep. There are four questions you ought to ask yourself as you prepare for ministry. Here's the first one. Am I a servant? Am I a servant? We talk a lot about servanthood and servant leadership. And we talk about all the different nuances of servant ministry. But you ought to ask yourself that question. Am I really a servant? As you prepare for ministry, as you minister the gospel, am I a servant? Look, of all the things that Paul could have said about King David, he was an incredible administrator. He was an unbelievable motivator of men. Look how he gathered that motley crowd at Ziglag and those other places and mobilized them and motivated them. He was an unbelievable fundraiser, raised all the money to build the temple. He was incredible. In fact, Asaph says he led with the integrity of his heart and the skillfulness, the excellence of his hands. Of all the things Paul could say about David, look what he said. David served. That's what he said. David served God's purpose. You see, David knew... The way up was down, and the way down was up. Some of us haven't learned that yet. He served. Am I a servant? And you know, those of you who are holding a Greek New Testament right now will immediately notice that, that this verb is, you don't hardly ever see it. In fact, you only find it two other times in the New Testament. It's not that commonly referred to uh, word, the, the noun form diakonos, the the servant, that foot washer. If we'd had a banquet in the first century world, we'd all come today. Dr. Aiken would have had somebody back there at the door on their knees with a basin of water and a towel because we wouldn't have ridden our bikes or our car, driven our cars. We'd have walked over dusty Judean or Galilean roads and we'd come in here and there would be a, a foot washer down there wash our feet when we came into the banquet. And if we were in discussion talking about him, we would mention him and refer to him as a diakonos, through the dust, a, a, a servant. But that's not the word he uses here. Nor does he use that other more common word, the doulos, the bond servant that we read about also in the Old Testament. That, that one who had come to the end of his tenure of servanthood. And he was free. He could go anywhere he wanted to go, look, do anything he wanted to do. And so he went out and checked the job market and went for job interviews. And he looked over everything the world had to offer. And then you know what he said? He said, you know what? My master is better to me than anything this world has to offer. 
And so he goes back to that one, and he chooses that one who first chose him. And you remember what the master does then for the doulos, the bondservant? He takes his earlobe, and he puts it on a post, and he takes them all, and he makes a mark in it. You, you know what Paul said in Galatians, I bear in my body the mark of the Lord. That's what he was talking about. So when somebody saw that guy walking down the street, and they saw that nonsense, you know what they said to themselves? They said, my, what a wonderful master he must serve. He could have gone anywhere and done anything, but he's a doulos. He chose that one who first chose him. But that's not the word he used. He used a compound word here that, that comes from a preposition meaning under and a verb that means to row. When he said that David served, he said David was an under rower. Uh, if you've ever been on a cruise of Paul's journeys, you leave out of the port at Athens and you see a big model of a ship. If you haven't, you've seen pictures of those great big wooden Greek sailing vessels with those holes in the side of the hull and those big oars that are coming out where down below the deck those servants, those slaves were chained to those oars and would row. And that's the word he used to describe the servant heart of David. David was an under rower. He didn't have to be on deck barking orders all the time. He found his place among other servants and was down there under rowing. Am I a servant in that sense? When we go to ministry, that's one of the first questions we ought to ask ourselves. Do you remember the conversation in the upper room? The night before the crucifixion, they gathered there for the Seder meal in, in John Mark's mother's home on Mount Zion in the upper room, and they get into an argument. Can you believe that? Do you remember the topic of the argument the disciples got into? They were arguing over which one of them would be greatest in the coming kingdom. And what did Jesus do? He got up from the table and he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash each of their feet. Whose feet needed washing the most that night? Whose feet in a few hours were going to be nailed fast to a Roman cross and yet... As far as we know, those were the feet that left that room that night unwashed in that sense. We're never more like Jesus than we're washing someone's feet. Am I a servant? I, I've seen you today reminds me of my days at Southwestern Seminary. I, I started Southwestern Seminary in, in 1970. That was a long time ago. Golly, that was a real long time ago. I'd been at TCU. I was a, uh, I'd just come to know Christ. I could count on one hand how many times I'd been to church when I was uh, graduating from high school and uh, came to know Christ in a beautiful and transforming way and went to TCU, went through the business school there actually, got a business administration degree, a BBA. And the summer before my senior year, I was taking, about to take the LSATs. I wanted to go to law school, and God called me into ministry. I went ahead, and I had a, just a few hours left in my BBA, so I went ahead to TCU, finished it that next semester, and then went to Southwestern Seminary, fresh, freshly called to ministry, just a new Christian. I went there, and, and every day we'd go down to the student center, and they're on the bulletin board. Now, this was hard for you. To, this was long before the days of laptop computing, so we, didn't, we couldn't print out posters or flyers or anything like that, and so we had things called mimeograph machines. How many of you have never heard of a mimeograph machine? Raise your hand. That's a, oh, man, this is an amazing thing here, Dr. Aiken. 
Had old purple ink. You'd have to roll it off of there. I can still smell that old stuff when you do it off. And it printed these flyers. Well, I'd go down to the student center, and here's a guy I was in preaching class with. He was preaching a youth revival over here at White Settlement or somewhere. And here was a guy that I, I was in uh, biblical backgrounds with, and he was preaching at a youth rally here. He was pulling there. And these guys were preaching. I had no place to preach. Well, I, I felt I was feeling sorry for myself one day. I got in my car and drove back over on the east side of Fort Worth where Fred Swank was, my pastor who led me to Christ, became like a father to me. A hundred of us in the decade of the 60s went into gospel ministry from that one church. And uh, I went over to see him. Went in his office and I said, Preacher, God, you know, God's called me to preach. I'm over at the seminary. Uh, I got nowhere to preach. All these other preachers, he just looked up at me. He said, Oh, son, he said, You be faithful over little things. God will make you real over greater things. I'm busy and I move on out of here. Well, that was real pastoral, wasn't it? If you go back over to Sagamore Hill Baptist Church, you'll see, uh, go to that parking lot right there and you'll still see two strips of black rubber where I peeled out of that parking lot. And I thought, man, you be faithful over little things. God makes you really over great things. I got up on Lancaster and I turned left. You be faithful over little things. God makes you really over great things. And I passed a nursing home. I'd passed 10,000 times. And before I knew it, I'd driven in it. I went in there and met the people that were in there. And they let me start coming over there on, on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock and preaching to those folks in that nursing home. I got back in my car, went downtown where I'd seen the old Union Gospel Mission. I went in there and met an old guy named Brother Williams, and he started letting me come down there on Tuesday night preaching to those people on Skid Row. That was over 40 years ago, and I've never had a week since then that I hadn't had multiple opportunities to open the book of God to the people of God and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ask yourself that question, am I a servant? When I went to First Baptist Church of Dallas, church had been through a turmoil. Dr. Crystal was my biggest asset, greatest supporter there. I preached part of his funeral. But I, I, I got a Bible promise before I went there. It was a, it was a promise that it was the word that, that the, the older elders had given to Rehoboam when he became king. Unfortunately, he didn't take it. 1 Kings 12, verse 7. I had it on my credenza on my phone at Dallas the whole time I was there. I read it before I picked up every phone call. I had it where I put the turned the ignition on in the car. I had it taped right there. I, I had it on my wallet where every time I'd pick out a credit card or something, I'd see it right there. First Kings 12, 7. You know what it says? If you'll be a servant to them and serve them and speak good words to them, they'll be your servants forever. You want to be spiritually successful in ministry. Ask yourself this question, am I a servant? You're never more like Jesus than when you're out there washing somebody's feet, even if they don't deserve it. Here's another question you need to ask yourself as you prepare for ministry. And, and that's this one. Do I have a sense of calling? Because I want to tell you something. If you're in ministry, there are going to be times when you're out there on the mission field. There are going to be times when you're pastor in a church that the only thing that's going to keep you on that road down to the church house is the call of God on your life. Do I have a sense of calling? Look what he says about David here. He says, David served God's purpose, God's calling upon his life. That's what David served. He served the call of God upon his life. Do you have a sense of calling? Do you, do you recognize and realize what 
It's said in Jeremiah 1.5 that before you were formed in the womb, He knew you and called you by name and set you apart for a purpose. You can learn so much about the call of God on your life in Acts 13. In fact, I think you can learn more about the call of God in Acts 13 than any other chapter in Scripture. Back in the beginning of that chapter, this chapter, in verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, and he names them. He starts naming them, Lucius and all these people that he names. And Saul, and verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Do you see that the call of God is personal? Look what he says in verse 2. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. There were a lot of folks in the church there at Antioch, that great mission-sending church. And he named several of them in verse 1. There were hundreds of people in that church. But the call of God on your life is personal. He said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul. These two, put them over to the side. It's personal. The call of God is personal. God still calls particular people to particular places for particular purposes. The call of God is personal. Secondly, the call of God is purposeful. Look what he says. Separate, aphorizo, put aside, put, take them from everybody else and put them over here to the side. Do you know that if you have a call of God upon your life, that's what God has done for you? There's a purpose in it. That's why it says he served God's purpose. God has taken you from everybody in this room right now and put you off to the side for his special purpose. That's why nobody has a thumbprint like you. That's why nobody has a DNA like you. Because you're indescribably valuable and somewhere there's a job for you to do that no one can do like you can do. Set apart from me. Put them off the side. It's personal. It's purposeful. It's practical. Look what he says next in verse 2. For the work to which I have called. There's something very practical about the call of God on your life. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you don't wear out the seat of your pants, you wear out the soles of your shoes because it's work. And fourthly, it's providential. He says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas, to the work to which I have called them. It is providential to the work to which I have called them. One of the most beautiful things you'll ever learn about the call of God is in the next two verses, 3 and 4. So look what happened. Verse 3 says, Then fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. S-E-N-T. The church at Antioch laid hands on them and they sent them off to follow the call of God. Look at verse 4. So being sent, S-E-N-T, out by the Holy Spirit, now, verse 3 says the church sent them. Verse 4 says the Holy Spirit sent them. Who sent them? How does it work, this call of God on your life? If you've got a Greek New Testament in your hands, you'll see one of the most amazing, beautiful things you'll ever find in the New Testament, informative things, because this... Our English language that's so limited, this S-E-N-T, these are two diametrically opposite words in verse 3 and verse 4. In verse 3 is the word apoluo that means to release or to let go. This is Acts 13.3. Ironically, the same word is used in Acts 3.13. 
where it talks about a prisoner who is released and let go. That's what the word means in verse 3. In verse 4, we have, that, we have a strong Greek word. We translate sent with that strong preposition to thrust out, to send out, to push out. How does it work? The Holy Spirit sends out the person. He pushes us out to the ministry. And what does the church do? It recognizes it and releases us to do the work of the ministry and perform the gifts that God has given us for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what happens? How do we get so messed up in some of our churches? Because sometimes the church sends somebody to some task or calls somebody to some task that the Holy Spirit hadn't sent. And sometimes the Holy Spirit sends somebody to the church, but the church doesn't release them and let them go to do the work of the ministry. But you find a place where the Holy Spirit sends somebody and the church recognizes it and releases them to do the work of the ministry, you'll find the power of God in that place. Am I a servant? Do I have a sense of calling? Because I want to tell you something. That's the only thing that will keep you going sometimes. Is that the call of God? is on your life, that you haven't chosen this task, you haven't chosen this calling, that God has set you apart personally. He's put your name there and put you apart for His own goodwill and His own purpose, the call of God. Somewhere there's a job to do that nobody can do like you can do. Somewhere there's a place to serve that no one is gifted to serve in like you're gifted to serve in. Somewhere there's somebody to reach that no one can reach like you can reach. Because God still calls particular people to particular places for particular purposes. There's a third question if you're preparing for ministry you ought to ask yourself. Am I a servant? Do I have a sense of calling? Do I understand the difference between a first century message that never changes and 21st century methodology that ought to always be changing. Do I understand the difference between a first century message and 21st century methodology? Look what he says. David served God's purpose when? In his own generation. Thayer says that word translates into about 30, 30, a little over 30 years. If I tried to pastor the churches God called me to pastor like my pastor pastored 30, 40 years ago, I'd fall on my face. What happens is that some people see two lost generations basically in our world out here today to the gospel of Christ and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what some people try to do, hoping it'll be more palatable to reach them, some people go out and try to change that first century message. And they develop, instead of a New Testament gospel, they've got sort of a new trendy gospel. You know, the new trendy gospel is uh, all about self-fulfillment. But just turn on your television and listen to some of those guys. It's all about how you can be fulfilled. Self, The New Testament gospel is about self-denial. If anybody comes after me, let him deny himself and take up. They're diametrically opposite. The New Trinity gospel is centered in man and his need of happiness and purpose in life. The New Testament gospel is centered in Christ. 
and his plan of redemption and his death and burial and resurrection. So what happens to some people in ministry is they want to reach these and so they very subtly without even realizing change a first century message. I'll tell you what some others do. Seeing the same thing, what they do is they don't change any methodology. Right before I got up here, I got a text to my little three-year-old grandson who's on his way to his first day of preschool today, looking all sharp and cute, and he's on his way. That kid is already literate in all kinds of three-dimensional computer graphics. I mean, he got his iPad. He can navigate anything he wants to do. He can do all these things. He's three years old. And yet, you know what would happen to him in some churches? You go put him in some churches, and some people are still teaching those kids on flannel graphs. And, and you don't even know what a flannel graph is. And wonder why we're losing generations to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, men don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. Why? Because that new wine that's still in the fermentation process, pardon me, Dr. Aiken, but it's still in the fermentation process, its gases, its gases are expanding, and you put it into those old skins that are brittle, and what happens? They break, Jesus said. And you lose the wine and you lose the skin. So Jesus said, what men take new wine and they put it into new skins that have elasticity and both are preserved. The wine is the message. It never changes. The skins are the methods which ought to always be changed. I always wanted two things said about my church. Some things never change and some things always change. Do you know the difference in a first century message and a 21st century methodology? it's always a tension. It was a tension in the early church. We're reading about the church at Antioch. Just a couple of chapters earlier, uh, Peter and James and the elders down at First Baptist Jerusalem got a little bit concerned about what they heard was going on up at Antioch because they weren't crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's like they thought they should. And they were not making folks that came to know Christ up there in Antioch, be circumcised. How can you be saved if you're not circumcised, they said. They weren't singing all the songs out of, the, out of David's hymnal, the Psalms. They were doing things differently. So what did they do, the church at Jerusalem? They, they asked a guy named Barnabas to go up there and check it out. And Barnabas journeys up there in Acts 11, and he checks out what's going on up there at Antioch. And, I love, and, and it was true. They weren't, they weren't doing things like they were doing them down at, down at the mother church. They were using different methods. They were doing different things. They, they weren't following all the ceremonial law. You know what it says in, in, in Acts 11:23. It says of Barnabas, he saw the grace of God and was glad. Man, I want to be more like Barnabas. I mean, I see a lot of folks doing things today like I didn't do them. And I think, man, they ought to be doing that like I did. But you know what I want to see? I want to see the grace of God there. And I want to be glad in it. And that's what you need to do if you're going to be a minister, a servant, like you should. Am I a servant? Do I have a sense of calling? Do I understand the difference in a first century message and a 21st century methodology? 
And there's one other question you ought to ask yourself as you prepare for ministry, and that's this one. And my time is gone, so I'm just going to touch on it. Do I have an eternal purpose? Because I want to tell you what happens in this. Look what it says. David served God's purpose in his own generation, and he fell asleep. Just a Hebraic euphemism that means he dropped dead. He died. Hebrews reminds us it's appointed unto man once to do that, once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. Do you realize that everyone with whom you deal is going to face God in judgment? Do I have an eternal purpose? Because I want to tell you what happens when you get out there. You get so caught up in exposition. You get also caught up in theology. You get so caught up in being right and being a part of this group, being a part of that group, that if you're not careful, you'll lose an eternal purpose. That men or women are lost without Christ, hopeless without Christ, helpless without Christ. If you're preparing for ministry, do I have an eternal purpose? Where did Christ take the gospel? You know where He took it? Always. Outside. Out there. That's where He was. He wasn't born in the sterile environment of a nice hospital somewhere, but where? Outside. Out there. Under the stars. In a cave. In some shepherd's field. He was always outside. He wasn't baptized in a beautiful stained glass baptistry somewhere, but where? Outside. Out there. Down in the Jordan Valley where John the Baptist was down there sweating and baptizing. Out there where the people were. He didn't eat his meals, a fellowship meals in a beautiful fellowship hall somewhere. But where? Outside. Out there on a green grassy hillside in the Galilee. He didn't preach his great sermons in a beautiful pulpit somewhere in some high steeple church. But where? Outside, out there. He used the bow of a boat. He didn't teach from a lectern with all sorts of multidimensional teaching aids. What? But what? Outside, out there. What did he talk about? Birds of the air. Lilies of the field. He was always outside, out there. And when he died, he didn't die in a white starch shirt like I've got on on a gold cross on some mahogany communion table in some high steeple stained glass church. But where? Outside. Out there where people were cursing and gambling. And that's where He told us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do I have an eternal purpose about what I'm doing? David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep. As always, as I close, Jesus is our example. Was He a servant? The Bible says He humbled Himself and became obedient even unto death. Death on a cross. Did He have a sense of calling? Remember what He said up in Samaria? He said, my meat, the thing that sustains me, is what? To do the will of Him who sent me. Yes, He had a sense of calling. Did he understand the difference in message and message? He changed everything. He changed the day of worship. He changed the way of worship. Did he have an eternal purpose? He said in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. Chris picked me up at the airport yesterday and drove me over here to the campus. 
And we were talking, he's in a Ph.D. program here, as many of you know, and he's, he's going to do his dissertation on Hosea. And we were talking about it. It reminded me of what happened. Susie and I were making one of the greatest, most major decisions of our life, and I close with this, a few, many, several years ago now. We were in Jerusalem, just the two of us, without a group. And uh, if you've been there, you've got the Garden of Gethsemane. It's beautiful, but to the, to the north... Uh, is a, a private garden owned by a man up in Abu Tor, and we've known him for years. So we were in that private garden there at Gethsemane praying. Just Nobody was in there, just the two of us, early one morning, right after sunrise. And she was sitting on a rock, and we were praying. And I looked down, and I looked on a blade of grass. And you're not going to believe this. There were diamonds all over that blade of grass. And I reached down there instinctively and picked it up and looked at it. And, of course, they weren't diamonds they were little droplets of dew. And into my mind came a verse of Scripture I had memorized. Right after I was saved. I don't know why I memorized it. It's an obscure verse. Chris and I were talking about Hosea. He's going to do his paper on it. It's in Hosea 14, verse 5. I hadn't thought about it in decades, but I had it in my memory. And it came to my mind. I looked at that piece of grass, that dew on it, and into my mind came that, that promise. God said, I will be like the dew to my people. And I looked at that. God, God said, I'll be like the dew to my people. Where does dew come from? You get up in the morning, go out and get the paper, there's dew on, there was dew on these bushes a while ago when we were walking in the chapel. Where does dew come from? Does dew fall? Or does dew rise? The answer is neither. It just appears when certain conditions are we call it condensation. Do just appears when certain conditions are right. Listen to that promise. I will be like the dew to my people. We say, oh, God, fall on us. No. We say, oh, God, rise up. No. He just shows up when certain conditions are right with us. And for you in ministry, those conditions are this. Am I a servant? Do I have a sense of calling? Do I understand this first century message must never change? Do I have an eternal purpose? And God will show up. And what a wonderful thing to be said of you when someone stands at your grave. He, she, served God's purpose in their generation and fell asleep. Father, seal these words in our hearts and we'll bless you for it and give you the praise and honor for the high calling you've given us to serve you and others in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.